Welcome everyone. I'm Pete Cuomo. I am a member in the intellectual property section here at Mintz. I am a patent attorney with a focus on litigation, and I'm also a co-chair of the IP Basics subcommittee at the BBA. And we've put together today's presentation to give you all a high-level understanding of how artificial intelligence is infiltrating aspects of our day-to-day -day lives and some of the issues that go into protecting and perhaps patenting the resulting innovations. So I'm pleased to introduce our distinguished panel of speakers who bring a variety of perspectives as both patentees, practitioners, and academic researchers. So starting with Julia Mathis, Julia is an experienced IP attorney who applies her knowledge of the law with an eye towards finding practical solutions that meet her client's business objectives. Julia holds a degree in electrical engineering and currently serves as senior IP counsel at Hologic, where she is involved in the use of AI to augment the detection and diagnosis of breast cancer. Next, we have Dr. Charles Fisher, who is the CEO and co-founder of Unlearn AI, focusing on advancing AI in medicine. He has a diverse background as a theoretical physicist, software engineer, and machine learning expert with expertise at Leap Motion and Pfizer. His research spans deep learning, probabilistic models, and Bayesian inference. Dr. Fisher holds a PhD in biophysics from Harvard and a BS from the University of Michigan. Uh, next, we have Dr. Michael J. Moyer, who is the Abraham and Lillian Benton Research Scholar, faculty co-director of the BU Technology and Policy Research Initiative and Professor of Law at Boston University School of Law. He teaches and does research and writing in the fields of intellectual property, antitrust, and law and economics. Next, we have Carolina Save, who is a patent attorney whose practice focuses on protecting client innovations in robotics, medical devices, automotive, mechanical products, wireless communications, consumer products and software fields. Carolina aids with patent prosecution, strategic portfolio development, licensing and diligence for companies with cutting edge technologies. Carolina most recently served as director of IP at Vicarious Surgical, a surgical robotics company aimed at performing minimally invasive surgery with 3D visualization, including the use of AI to increase procedure efficiency, and improve patient outcomes. Finally, we have Frank Geratana. He is a partner in the IP section here at Mintz. He develops patent portfolios in emerging technologies, including in connection with artificial intelligence and machine learning. Frank is also a big science fiction fan and loves speculating on the future of technology. So to kick things off, I wanted to just touch on some of the uh, recent headlines that that I've seen, and the, the, these are headlines just from the last week or so. And, and what they show is that AI applications and issues are finding their way into the news literally on a daily basis. In terms of subject matter as well, uh, there seems like AI has very few limitations 
The examples that you see here include self-driving cars, drug discovery, enhanced surgical techniques, financial transactions, police dogs, and the all too familiar customer service bot that uh, I think we've probably all experienced. And the law is no exception. And this is another example of where AI is being developed here by a University of Washington group to generate what they call a patent evaluator. Uh, and this is being used, they say, to uh, utilize machine learning methods to analyze patent method claims the text and ultimately determine whether a business method claim application would be rejected or rather just a method claim would be rejected. So um, AI is even infiltrated areas of uh, the law directly. And then finally, uh, just to set the table a little bit more in terms of people seeking patent protection on AI related innovations, those applications have surged in recent years, as you can see here. Uh, according to Bloomberg Law, the trend line is continuing to go up, and this really began uh, to trend up upward sharply in 2018, as you can see. So I'd like to turn it over to the panel now, and um, I'll start out by you know, asking, what is artificial intelligence at a high level? Frank, do you want to take a swing at this? Yeah, I I have a couple of thoughts. And, you know, it's interesting. I think that the concept of artificial intelligence has been around for a while. You mentioned that I've always been into science fiction and there's always been representations of things like, you know, robots that behave like humans and so on. And I think a lot of people, you know, would see or had in their mind that artificial intelligence is this idea that a computer could have the same intelligence, the same intellectual capacities as a human being. Um, I think where we are today in 2023, um, I think that artificial intelligence is probably better described as in a, any computer system that has an independent capacity for logic and analysis, um, you know, it, it, independent of a human operator. Uh, I think we're seeing just the beginnings of this type of technology. So when we say that, when we talk about artificial intelligence, we're not necessarily talking about something that has the same capacities as, you know, the human mind, as human intelligence, um, you know, but the very beginnings of the idea that computers can apply these things independently. These days, most of the, most of the time when people are talking about artificial intelligence, what I see them actually talking about is a subset called machine learning. Uh, that's a technology where a computer system has a, a what's called a model that represents some domain of information, and that model can be used to uh, uh, you know analyze or replicate data in that domain. Uh, just as an example, like one of the common applications of machine learning we're seeing these days is natural language processing. Uh, the chat GPT is one example that's uh, made a lot of, you know, it's, it's been in the news because it's pretty sophisticated. And in the background, there's a model that essentially represents the English language and how you can construct uh, sentences. Uh, obviously, the English language has, you know, patterns and we all speak English and all communicate with each other because there are patterns in the language that are mutually intelligible. Behind the scenes, there's this, you know, essentially this huge database, the model that allows the system to replicate that information. Um, and machine learning is used for lots of other things, but that's sort of the main application of the technology we're seeing now. 
I'm curious if the others on the panel have other, you know, other ways of describing this technology. Or maybe, 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 maybe that covers it all. <laughs> Anyone else want to take a swing? Um, yeah, I, I think um, because it's such a hot technology, I think these days everybody says, oh, you know, it's an AI, right? And I think that we tend to kind of overgeneralize sometimes. And, and when we talk about AI, sometimes we mean the computer algorithm and not AI. Um, and so I think uh, it's become such a hot button that people just kind of throw it out there when I think what they mean is, is just software sometimes. Um, and so I think it's um, it's an interesting thing that uh, the uh, that definition is a is a uh, a loose uh, a loose definition in, in my opinion because it, it tends to move depending on who you talk to. I brought a, the example earlier about chatbots. Um, I wonder if there are any other examples of how AI is being used in in people's day to day lives. Would anyone like to comment about that? I mean, I'm I'm happy to to comment because it's used in everything. <laughs> yeah, what are what are some examples, Charles? Um, I think most of the examples in which AI and machine learning are being used today, people don't realize. Um, an example of this it, that's I think pretty clear is you know people gave. Some of the uh, so like the Microsoft hooked up ChatGPT immediately to Bing, right? And so you have this ability to do search of the internet through a natural language interface. So you can talk to your computer and have it search the internet. Tell it you don't like that result, it'll go find you a different result. So so forth. Um, but what I think people don't realize is that search was already using these types of things behind the scenes. You just weren't interacting with it that way. Um, and so I think that this is true for everything. Every time you go to Amazon and it recommends products, every time you go to search and you look at something, uh, all of those things on the back end are being driven by machine learning and AI algorithms, and you just don't know. And I think most of us have uh, experienced Alexa or Siri, uh, which I think would be uh, other examples of day-to-day -day, um, AI in our lives. Just going around the room, um, what are some of the ways that artificial intelligence is driving or improving innovation in your work or in areas that you've studied and observed? Um, yeah, so I'm happy to go first. So uh, Pologic is a um, many, many things, but uh, uh, one of the main focuses of the company is uh, women's health um, and a large part of the um, the products that we make are around uh, breast cancer detection, diagnosis, and treatment. And one of the ways that uh, we've uh, been using um, artificial intelligence with commercial products um, is in the area of breast cancer detection and diagnosis in a way that uh, that assists the radiologist in detecting the, the cancer. Um, right now, it's a product that uh, just helps the radiologist to look at certain areas that could potentially be regions of interest that could be cancerous. Uh, it marks those regions for the radiologist to focus their review. Uh, we've recently rolled out a, a product um, that also helps with um, managing the radiologist's workflow. So uh, cases that are 
um, more um, will require you know additional review or or could be complex uh, cases. Those you know would be marked accordingly. Um, in addition, you know there could be some some time benefits in terms of like this case is going to take you you know um, this much time to review versus another case is going to take less time to review. Um, and so that's that's been the way that we've been um, uh, using AI, and it's a uh, you know it's an exciting area. Right, radiologists, uh, um, the ones that have adopted this technology, really love it because it, it really helps them to to focus on specific areas that they need to review. Um, as as you can imagine, you know humans and and what they're good at um, uh, and and complex thinking is is that's something that that humans are good at. But if you're you're you know, force them to look at, you know, day in and out, you know, so many images, there's uh, fatigue, and that's a real thing for radiologists. So if they can really focus their time uh, effectively and efficiently on the cases that really need um, expert review, um, then you can really get to some really great uh, outcomes for, for patients. Charlie, yes. I have yeah, I'm happy to add on from a surgical robotics standpoint, um, where there's constantly data being collected throughout, um, you know, from different sensors throughout robotic arms and um, as well as in the camera and using image processing. And so gathering all that data to really improve how the robot uh, responds or is, is controlled. Um, so you're learning the controls, for example, for tooltip tasks, uh, whether you're suturing or you're, you're placing a mesh or, or um, learning where features are with, within a cavity, for example, to, to avoid them or um, to better understand how to navigate. Um, so, and then there's also, you know, you, other technologies related to that, such as depth perception, like measuring depth um, and understanding that and using that to also uh, create a model, right, of how the robot arms and the tool tips move based on previous movements in that. Um, and all of the all of this model, building up this model, and um, you're really leading to more accurate surgical procedures. Um, and arguably probably also faster as well. So Pete, I will go next. Uh, I have been um, obsessing over AI's use in business method technology. Uh, and a couple of examples, this is much less glamorous than, than the cases we've just heard described. Uh, and you've already mentioned call centers as one popular domain for AI where you combine um, uh, audio processing with natural language processing, and uh, you'll have the AI that is allocating workflow uh, to humans after it tr takes a stab at trying to answer questions. Uh, so there are many, many uh, patents uh, granted on call centers. Um, another application that um, I think everyone in the audience would be familiar with is uh, credit card fraud detection. So uh, when I get uh, a text message asking if I'm really in a bar in Key West um, or is somebody else using my credit card, um, you know, we have AI to thank for uh, spotting patterns that might be consistent with fraud. And so that can be integrated into a, a larger system that, that can be patented. And so also a very active area for uh, AI applications in, in business methods. Great. 
Charles, how about you? Um, at Unlearn, we work on what's really a pretty large scale AI research problem. So our goal is essentially to use AI to create a simulation of the human body that allows us to predict what would happen, sort of anything and everything that would may happen to a patient in the future, uh, what their health outcomes could be. Um, and we call these digital twins of those people. Uh, it's a super hard problem because the human body has 37 trillion cells in it, which is 100 times the number of stars in the galaxy. Uh, so it's a it's a very challenge, challenging problem. Uh, uh, we currently focus on uh, applying these things, particularly within medical research, working with biotech and pharma companies to uh, accelerate clinical trials and, and get new treatments to market faster. Great. Frank? Uh, I, I wanted to go last because while we were talking about this, I actually asked ChatGBT to give some examples of AI being used today. And not so, it actually covered pretty much what we've been talking about. The examples it gave um, was medical diagnosis and treatment, uh, personalized recommendations like in Netflix, Amazon, and Spotify, uh, image and speech recognition, uh, fraud detection, uh, gaming, like non-player characters in games, chatbots, of course, and autonomous vehicles. Uh, so I thought that was pretty neat. But actually, that last one, autonomous vehicles, is one where um, I do a lot of work these days. You know, the you know eventually, you know, I think in the coming years, we're going to have technologies where cars really can drive themselves, and that's sort of what people envision when they think of autonomous vehicles, true self-driving cars. But there's a lot of intermediate steps along the way already we're seeing a lot of vehicles available to consumers they have technology that will you know for example like ensure that the car stays in in um uh, stays in the lane and otherwise provides some additional functionality to human drivers uh but eventually i think we will see situations where you can just hop in a car and the car will drive itself and even do sophisticated things like communicate with other cars nearby in order to ensure that it avoids things like accidents and so forth. And so that's, that's a really exciting technology. That's, that's, um, uh, you know, I, I think is going to evolve very rapidly in the next couple of years. Yeah. I tell my kids that one day they won't need to learn how to drive, but they'll just get in the car and the car will just get them to where they need to go. Well, for anyone who's been watching the NCAA tournament games, there, there are commercials showing uh, the cars driving on the road while the people are, padding to uh, some of the theme music. I think Chevy is running those ads and they're changing lanes and doing all kinds of sophisticated things. So uh, it does seem like that is uh, the future. Um, another question for all of you, how has AI changed the way that innovations occur in your subject matter areas of interest? Maybe I'll go in reverse order, Frank unless you want to go last again, um, maybe I'll start with you. Yeah, well, I, I'll say a little bit more about autonomous vehicles. I think that, um, uh, you know, right now, uh, there, there's, there's been a lot of concern about the topic of um, autonomous vehicles and safety. And, you know, obviously right now, you know, any, you know, any vehicle typically goes through, you um, 
uh, uh, you know, there are, is held to a you know high bar as far as safety. Anytime there's ever any issue with a vehicle, typically, you know, any, any safety issue at all, there's a recall and so forth. And so obviously people are really sensitive to this issue. And I think that AI is actually going to tremendously increase safety in the world of automobiles. Um, you know, you mentioned Chevy. I think that's a good example because, uh, you know, Chevy General Motors, you know, big, well-established, uh, you know, car company, they're not going to release anything that doesn't adhere to a really strict uh, safety standard. And so when companies like that do release vehicles that end up being, you know, essentially, you know, close to fully autonomous or fully autonomous, you know, I think they're going to have to adhere to a, a you know pretty strict safety standard be accepted by the general public. But once that's once that happens, I think that's going to create a uh, you know a, a big transformation in the industry where the the expectation of safety will be high, and I think all these vehicles will be able to perform at such a high level that human drivers will probably be considered to be you know unsafe. And, you know, I think that's going to that's that will drastically change the way that that industry ends up operating. Yeah, I find the concept of the vehicles communicating with each other silently to be pretty fascinating. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I think I, I think it, I think it's really cool. I think I think this technology is going to drive safety innovation in a way that means that, you know, just, you know, you know, right now, things like car crashes and so forth are. Uh, you know, you know, they're, uh, you know, one of the, unfortunately, you know, the top killers in modern society and the innovations and safety that AI are going to enable are, you know, I, I think, I think they're going to just drastically change the way that those things affect us. Mike, how about you? Uh -huh. um, yeah, sorry. I should have gone ahead knowing that we reversed order. Um, so uh, Talking about business method patents again, uh, um, I'll be um, uh, positive about some aspects and negative about some aspects. You know, this less glamorous domain, some good and bad things will happen. Uh, let me uh, use two words. Uh, one is logistics and one is personalization. Uh, I think mostly good things are going to happen as AI is more and more important in the business world. Uh, we manage inventory and shipping and delivery, things like that, uh, better and better as we become increasingly able to use AI uh, as part of that process. Uh, and the success of, of Walmart and Amazon, you know, indicate um, the, the enormous payoff from a uh, successful implementation of really smart logistical systems. Um, personalization um, brings really good things and maybe some bad things. Um, we can get increasingly personalized products. Um, with digital prod products, it's easy to, to personalize those, but even uh, hard products can be personalized to a greater extent. You know. Uh, I think Dell computers might have been the trailblazer in this regard, but you know we increasingly see opportunities for that, where businesses are gathering consumer information, advertising in a personalized way to consumers, uh, finding out better and better what is a good product match for each of us, and so um, you know that's the positive side. The negative side of personalization is that um, it's achieved uh, to some degree by uh, accessing our personal data in a way that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And it provides an opportunity for 
personalizing prices as well as product characteristics. And it may mean that um, uh, consumers are getting um, less and less of the benefit from a bargain <clears throat> from a sophisticated seller that can choose a different price for all the different customers based on all of the uh, information that they've gathered about each of us. Um, that won't necessarily be the future. It's it's hard to figure out what uh, the path will be for competition in a world where algorithms are setting prices for, for products. Um, we could get <clears throat> lots of harmful discrimination. Uh, we could get algorithms that are colluding with each other and raising prices to everyone, or we could get more intense competition. So um, there's a reason to worry about the bad outcomes uh, and hard to predict where we're going. It makes me wonder if some of the airlines have some of those algorithms already looking at the, the similar pricing. And Yeah, no doubt. No doubt they do. Yeah. And I'm also a little bit encouraged by your comments about um, shipping, because I think about during the pandemic, all of the um, shipping issues worldwide that uh, everyone was experiencing, maybe AI could solve that one day. Yeah, but, you know, we had uh, physical constraints. Uh, we just didn't have enough cargo ships. Um, That's a good point. Um, who's next? Charles. Um, well, my field of study is artificial intelligence. It is artificial intelligence. So how has AI changed? Uh, I guess my field of study is an interesting, it's an interesting question. Um, AI research has changed dramatically in the last five years, dramatically. Um, the algorithms that we are using now are uh, largely things that people call deep neural networks and that perform what we call generative modeling. And this allows these kinds of deep neural networks to account for uncertainty in what they're doing. It allows them to plan and kind of react to their own actions in certain cases. Um, and it allows them to learn without direct supervision. So it really is evolving these things much closer to looking like the human brain than the old AI algorithms that were more machine learning that people would program in. And um, these have proven to be unreasonably effective. Uh, <laughs> so so uh, the... I mean, when I when I started working on this field, you know, maybe like 15 years ago, I did not think that I would see an artificial general intelligence in my lifetime. And what that means is I did not think that I'd see an AI that was as smart as a human being within my lifetime. I believe now that we'll probably see that within 10 to 20 years. Uh, that exceeds human performance on everything. Um, and this is really fundamental, like, a, I mean, a huge fundamental shift in the underlying technologies within the last five years. Um, and it will, I think, change everything. Wow. Carolina? Um, yeah, so I'll keep focusing on the surgical um, robotics field. And I mean, there it's really thinking about um, guiding the surgeons, right? All this we are uh, training the surgeons um, and we're able to provide more information to the surgeons with all of this data. So um, if we think about how the surgeon is receiving that information, um, you know, we're, we're seeing 
um, head mounted displays, right? Where you are now using a lot of image overlay, um, providing sort of an augmented reality for, for the surgeon where you are superimposing uh, 3D virtual objects on a real-time image. Uh, so you're able to provide all of a sudden more information to the surgeon in real time. Um, and, you know, that might be, for example, you are the, allowing the surgeon to view various organs or nerves um, that were otherwise not visible in just the live video that they're viewing. Um, so you're, you're um, making it faster. You're providing more information for the surgeon. Ultimately, they are um, being able to be more accurate by having more information. I've heard the term augmented reality. Is that similar to what you're discussing? Yeah, absolutely. I think today, I think it is more um, a combination of superimposing this onto real-time video to be able to provide more insight to what you are doing in, in the body. Um, you know, there are other, you could take it in a more of a training um, perspective as well, where you are completely creating um, an augmented reality um, where there is a training process of using um, for a surgical procedure. But today, I think where where the technology is, is a lot of um, image overlaying um, within, for example, a head mounted display. Julia. Um, last but not least, I suppose. Um, so we, um, as a company and, and as a technology, you know, the, when I talked about um, detection or breast cancer detection, we had a before an AI solution. We had um, what we call the computer-aided detection uh, software-based algorithm, and that worked well. Um, but AI is just so much more powerful. So, you know, even in our you know, regulatory filings, we were able to show increased sensitivity in how the AI product worked. Um, you know, I think it's a, um, to the, we're getting the, the AI based um, solution is so much more advanced than that base solution that we're getting to a point where that solution could potentially be more accurate than the radiologist, the radiologist human. Um, it's just not used right now in that way because um, that um, and we'll, we probably we'll probably talk about it later. But uh, radiologists are not comfortable with being replaced by an AI yet. So, um, so that's one way that the AI has has um, resulted in innovations for us, um, and that really that results into better you know outcomes for for patients and, and better detection. Um, you know, and we're really thinking about it as the future, and because it's gotten so good, the technology has gotten so good that we can apply it in other fields besides, you know, image-based detection. Um, that includes, you know, a full breadth of really products that could be across the continuum of care, um, not just in detection, but in, um, you know, applications for breast surgeons, you know, probably similar to what uh, Carolina is talking about, um, as well as pathologists and, and being able to detect and look at images um, in a different way than they're used to now. Um, and so really, you know, because of the strength of the technology, it allows us to really implement it across many, many applications that we really have not um, 
had before. It's exciting. It's exciting. I, I, I concur. Um, I'm going to pivot now. Let, let's uh, consider a hypothetical. Um, let's say AI is used to invent um, a, uh, we'll just say a, a small molecule drug, for example, where a human pushes a button and AI does the rest. Uh, can a patent be awarded for discoveries or other innovations created? by AI. And uh, Mike, maybe I'll start with you. Well, as a, a law professor, I'd, I'd say that's a real softball of a question for me. Um, it's good to start off your students with easy questions. So uh, we know the answer is no, except so far in South Africa. Uh, several jurisdictions, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, uh, the European Patent Office, um, US and others, have all considered this and they mostly have all reached the same conclusion that patents go to inventors, inventors need to be individuals, and we construe the term individual to mean uh, a natural person. So uh, AI uh, not, <clears throat> not being a natural person cannot be named. Uh, the slide that just came up uh, has the name uh, Thaler, and um, Thaler is a computer scientist who created uh, Dabas, his uh, uh, AI algorithm, um, which uh, produced a couple of technologies that um, Thaler wanted to patent naming Dabas as the inventor. And so far, uh, the different uh, countries I just described or mentioned uh, have all rejected you know, and there, it's not a very thoughtful analysis so far. It's a simple analysis that says that um, inventors must be human. And we've seen that uh, Fowler has now taken this to uh, the high court in multiple uh, states, including the United States, as well as uh, the, the UK Supreme Court. So the story is not over, I suppose. Right, right. No, I, I don't. I don't foresee any progress on on his behalf, especially. But yeah, we we don't know. We don't know yet. Can I jump in with some thoughts? Absolutely. Yeah, no, I I think this is a really interesting situation. My um, uh, my 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 view on this is that it's a little too early to uh, uh it's a little too early to really. Uh, dive into this issue, especially, you know, with the litigation that Valor is pursuing. Um, so I, I, I do think that this issue is tied up with like a much bigger set of set of concerns that I think will arise someday in the future as these systems become more and more intelligent, as these systems look a lot more like like humans in terms of their intelligence. I think there'll be a lot of, uh, you know, interesting and thorny issues raised about you know to what rights are these systems entitled and uh you know how do they fit into the framework you know including legal frameworks that exist in our society that apply to humans but you know i think most scholars would agree that that technology is not there yet um you know like charles mentioned you know it may well be coming pretty soon but systems like davis are definitely not there even just with this question of inventorship um, you know, obviously, you know, right now the courts have said, you know, no, you know, only a, you know, only a human being can be an inventor. 
And whether or not that, you know, whether or not that, you know, that is in fact what uh, that whether or not that is in fact the defining issue, I think even if we decided, okay, sure, artificial intelligence could be an inventor. um, I don't think that any AI system today, Davos or anything else, would meet even the basic the basic other requirements of an inventor. For example, like if you're an inventor in a patent application, you have to sign a declaration asserting that you're an inventor. You have ownership rights in that invention unless you assign it to somebody else. And I don't think the Davos system by any standard is capable of making such a declaration or any of the other basic things that an inventor needs to do. When that occurs, I, I think then this, this issue will be highly relevant and we'll probably need another look and you know, we'll probably be tied up into all kinds of other issues about what rights these systems are granted. But until then, I think the systems that exist today really are just sophisticated tools operated by human beings. That's my perspective. Yeah. So um, the, the the term tool, the, the last thing that Frank said, I think is an important uh, consideration here. You know, we've got um, uh, lots of sophisticated research tools that people use when they're inventing. Uh, so the PCR machine never asked it to be an inventor, and it's probably not going to be. It has difficulty forming a permanent and definite notion of what it is that uh, it's it's coming up with. You know, for a while before Myriad, we had gene patents, and you know, PCR could certainly be a valuable instrument or tool in in finding out what the sequence of a particular gene would be. Um, but, um, you know, I think what Frank is pushing us toward is to think about, um, you know, what contribution did the human make? What did the AI make? Uh, and you can't fight the hypothetical. You have to suppose that we're already there. Uh, and so then that could become an interesting question if, you know, you, you still have to get over that first hump. And I don't see a reason to have uh, the law change to make AI uh, you know, the the generally intelligent AI, I don't see a reason to make it an inventor. I don't see a reason to change the statute to, to make that possible. So I, I kind of doubt that these more difficult questions are going to pop up because I just don't see that changing. By the way, I asked ChatGBT uh, this question. Um, and it agrees with us that it's an inventor, but it pointed out that, you know, the, it is, it is unlikely that ChatGPT could be named as an inventor under existing law. Um, I thought that was interesting. <laughs> ChatGPT continues to impress. Um, yeah. Uh, let me add one final thought here is uh, the reason I say I don't see a change in, in terms of a narrow definition of inventor um, is because, um, you know, we don't really need patents to induce chat GPT to get to work. Uh, you know, we just turn it on and it it's not asking for higher wages. It's it's not, uh, you know, complaining about not getting home to see the kids. Um, you know, we don't need that incentive uh, when, you know, what it we take a step back, we need incentives for people to produce new and better uh, neural networks. Um, but those will be patentable and the patents will go to the humans that come up. Or I guess your question, Frank, might be when, when it's the AI that creates the new and better neural network then. Uh, but, you know, we probably don't need a patent to motivate that AI to come up with an improvement to neural networks. So um, if we keep focus on what Graham V. John Deere told us to focus on, is a patent needed to induce the innovation, it's hard for me to see uh, a reason to grant patents to AI. That's an interesting point. Um, 
What are some of the other issues involved with awarding a patent to an AI-generated or even an AI-assisted innovation? Anyone want to take a stab at that? I'll make a quick comment, but I'm really going to invite uh, the lawyers to say more or Charles to say more. But um, I have to make a disclosure. I, I might choose to keep my AI secret and I don't have to disclose anything to the world. And so that's clearly a cost is that if I have a, um, a socially valuable and informative disclosure, then other people might be able to take what I've contributed and build on it and maybe zoom ahead of me. Um, or they might take what I've contributed to the world and infringe my patent in a way that I have trouble detecting. So, you know, those are two of the downsides of patenting that might be avoided by secrecy. And Mike, just for context, do you want to explain the, the so-called bargain for exchange? Oh, sure, sure, sure. Um, yeah. So what Pete is um, is looking for is, um, you know, patent law basics. Um, as an inventor, there's this hypothetical bargain in which society gives me a right to exclude others from using my new technology that I've patented. In exchange for giving me that right to exclude, I'm supposed to give the world a disclosure. The disclosure will teach people in my field, um, people having uh, the same skill in the art that the typical person in my field has, uh, information about the utility or the, the, the use of the invention. Um, and I need to teach uh, pe people having ordinary skill in this art how to make and use the technology. And I have to describe it um, to show that I really possessed it when I said I did. So those are the uh details of the disclosure that's required uh, in uh, a valid uh, patent or a patent that supports claims validly. And then the benefit would be the monopoly that is granted. And that's the aspect I think we were alluding to earlier that AI would not need uh, an incentive, a monopoly incentive. Right, right. Or yeah, monopoly might be the right term in some settings, but you know, it's, it's a, a right to exclude people. I might not be a monopolist because others might be able to do something similar that's outside the scope of my patent. And in some cases like uh, new active ingredients in pharmaceuticals, then I might have a genuine monopoly. Um, but at least I get economic value from being able to exclude other people from my new technology. I was just gonna comment from a practical standpoint in terms of awarding a patent to um, to an AI or naming them as an inventor, you know, practically, at least until the AI is conscious and operating on its own, you know, they're for the most part owned by companies, right? Companies that develop them and, and sell them and, and monetize them, right? And so, you know, as an employee, if you were a, a natural born person uh, working for a company, you would assign all of your intellectual property right to that company and then the company would uh, apply for the patent you know that it would then own and, and have that right to exclude others and so okay so you grant the ai as an inventor right name them as a name it i should say um as an inventor and and ultimately that the 
asset is still owned by the company, right? So it's more of a philosophical question, I think, for the most part, until I guess they become sentient and want to apply for patents on their own, and then it becomes a relationship. Carolina, any challenges you've uh, experienced in trying to patent um, AI-assisted innovations? Um, I mean, coming down to sort of even the, the drafting of the patent applications in this space, right? I think for um, a lot of this in surgical robotics, we end up um, with claim construction tying it to how the robot's actually responding. Um, so it's you've got what's happening in the background, but what's the robot, how is the robot reacting based on those controls and you know, how are the tooltips or the arms affected or how does the camera move and, and zoom based on the captured data? That's that's one way of um, claim construction to, to get through that challenge. Um, the other way is capturing what we're outputting to the surgeon. So um, using interface claims. Um, is another another way. So with the surgical robotics, it's it's easy in one way because we have something that can that's actually happening in response. Um, but that's what we've been doing. Yeah. Frank, any challenges that you've uh, confronted while pursuing uh, patent production for AI-assisted innovations? Yeah, most most of the interest I see in patent production right now is on the AI technology itself, things like, um, you know, protecting, uh, you know, we talk about machine learning, you know, protecting machine learning technique, a model, a way of training the model and so forth. And so that's sort of the, the first step. Um, you know, I think that in terms of, uh, uh, you know, inventions that actually generated using AI as, you know, as assistance, we've talked about, you know, some of the issues with inventorship and so forth. I mean, you know, look, if an AI, if an AI can't be an inventor, um, you know, like I said, I think that the the right conclusion is that, you know, a human being is an inventor. Although I do, I do see a uh, sort of a brewing controversy about the question of, you know, does this mean that technology can be invented without any inventor at all? Although this hasn't happened yet on the patent side. Um, you know, I've seen it on the copyright side. There's a lot of generative AI used to create, uh, you know, creative works like images and so forth. And I saw recently the copyright office refused to grant a copyright on, um, I, I think it was uh, images generated using AI, uh, you know, even though, uh, you know, even though the AI system that generated those was not considered to be the author the human who operated the system was also not considered to be the author. I think that was the outcome. And so, you know, although we're in the early stages of this, I, I see potentially the same issue on the patent side where maybe a maybe the patent office will refuse to grant a patent on an AI assistant invention because the human who operated the AI system is not considered to be the inventor. But also the AI is not considered to be an inventor. There's no inventor and therefore no invention. I don't know if that's actually going to happen. But if I had to make a prediction about the next couple of years, my prediction is that some patent office somewhere will raise this issue. So, Mike, I want to follow up on something you said earlier, and that was about uh, using trade secrecy to uh, protect AI innovations. and. Maybe you could just offer an explanation of some of the 
uh, other ways besides patents that you can um, protect AI innovations. Yeah, I'll, I'll take a minute also just to elaborate on something I, something else I said earlier. Sure. Uh, when I said Graham v. John Deere, prominent patent case, spoke about the patent system as uh, serving a purpose of inducing invention that would not have occurred without the patent. You know, you might ask yourself, well, how do I profit from invention if it's not with a patent? And one answer is to keep the new technology secret. Uh, so uh, Google, with its search technology, has some patents, but probably has relied more on secrecy than patents to capture value. Uh, lots of uh, software inventions can, especially as we move towards software as a service, uh, can be hidden away so that you can effectively protect your invention. Um, and this has been true for processes of manufacturing chemicals and, and other sorts of inventions that you've been able to keep them secret. Um, Microsoft, besides using copyright and trade secret, when it was building a fortune from the DOS and Windows operating system, was basically, and Facebook, they're basically uh, profiting by being first to market and having a network so that, um, you know, just being first to market. Um, Apple gets tons of value out of the goodwill associated with its uh, trademark. So trademark, copyright, secrecy, being first to market, benefit of network effects. Um, there, there has been a couple of surveys of research managers where they're asked, uh, what's the most important method you use to capture value from invention? Um, outside of pharmaceuticals and chemicals, patents is kind of low on the list, maybe fourth typically. Uh, so managers recognize that um, you can build a business model that will profit, allow you to profit from your innovation in, in lots of different ways. Um, and I actually, I, I didn't say that much about secrecy, I guess, but um, you know, it should be clear, I guess, to people in the audience that um, if there's a technology that can easily be kept secret, it is attractive to you as the inventor to try to rely on secrecy because you expect others won't be able to see what you're doing. And you will worry on top of that about difficulties with enforcing your patent. Uh, if you say, well, I have a patent, but I, I can't detect when infringement is occurring, that's uh, kind of a second level of problem. Want to let others join in? Otherwise, I'll just keep on going. <laughs> That's fine. Um, Frank, do you have any thoughts about protecting uh, AI innovations with, say, copyright or trade secret versus patents? Yeah, I, I think that this this trade secret topic one I see coming up a lot because the, with uh, so just generally in the patent world. It's a little harder to get patent protection on computer-related technology than other technologies. Uh, there's this big uh, patent case called Alice about eight years ago that, um, you know, some say clarified, some say changed the standard on what is or is not patentable. And at the end of the day, you know, I find as a practitioner, you know, any computer-related invention, including anything AI-based, is gonna um, is gonna be tougher to get through the patent office. And so many businesses looking at that will say, okay, well, patent protection would be really valuable, 
But if we file this patent application and it's going to be published and we're less likely to get patent protection, maybe it's in our interest just to keep it secret and uh, you know, rather than go the patent route, we'll just um, uh, you know, maintain secrecy. And for a company whose business model uh, doesn't require exposing its technology to the outside world, I think that's a totally reasonable approach. If you, you know, for example, you have an internal AI model, you're not exposing that to the outside world in a way that um, you know wouldn't allow that to wouldn't allow trade secret protection to apply. Then maybe it just makes a lot more sense to do that. And I think that there are more companies making that decision. But don't get me wrong, though. I think there are plenty of good reasons to pursue patent protection. You know, I'm biased because I'm a patent attorney, but um, you know, I, I think that the especially now, given that we're in what I think are the early days of this technology. Any patent protection on AI-related technology is more likely to be valuable than in a more mature technology field. Charles, I'm going to turn it over. Oh, go ahead, Caroline. I was just going to say I'm agreeing with, with what Frank just said, and I think it, it kind of becomes a fine line, too, depending on your uh, point of development at a company. And you see that a lot, you know, in earlier stage companies, you know, where at what point do you decide to um, file a patent? make it public versus keeping it secret and for how long, um, it, it can be a really tricky business decision at the same time. Julia, did you have anything to add before I? Yeah, I was just gonna add, you know, in terms of patents being serving different functions for different companies, right? And, and this is something, you know, to, to what Carolina said, right? Um, at which stage in the development you are, but really what are you hoping to use that patent for, right? If you're thinking of your, your patent as an exclusionary right and you want to stop others from, from doing, you know, what you're doing, that's that's one way of using the patent. But there's, you know, those are assets, right, that you can use as a um, as a way of securing funding, right? That's, that's one way to use patents. Um, another way, you know, is defensively, right? So if you're in a very crowded um, AI field, right, but other competitors who are actively filing on things, right, um, then maybe potentially it's a, you want to have some some ideas defensively in case they decide to sue you for a patent. So there's different ways of using patents, not just as a way of asserting them against others. So that's something, something to think about when you're making that decision. So Charles, uh... As the CEO and founder of Unlearn AI, uh, why did you choose patent protection versus another form of IP protection? Well, I think one of the things that Frank said earlier, a couple of things really resonated. So one, we work in a regulated area where we don't have the option of complete secrecy. That that's, You don't have that option. We have to tell the regulators what we're doing. <laughs> so um, so given that we're, we're going to have to make a, a public disclosure, um, in addition, in you know, I think that in a lot of areas of research, researchers are used to publishing things. That's what we do. That's what moves the field forward, right? I mean, the mission for us usually is to move the field forward. So patent protection is really um, one of the kind of like our only option to some degree uh, of, of any kind of protection. I think the biggest thing that it serves is more of the ability to claim ownership and inventorship over these new technologies. Um, which you know has a lot of you know business reasons why we want to be able to do that. In terms of defensibility, the kind of way that I think about it is, you know, suppose that I have like a restaurant kitchen, 
Um, and I have to, I have to disclose for some regulatory reason, the recipe that I'm going to be for, for some dish I'm going to be making. It, can somebody easily replicate that? Well, maybe, maybe not because there's the aspect of having the recipe, but then you need to be able to have all of the high quality ingredients. So those are like the data that you need to have to put into it. If you don't have the ingredients, it doesn't matter. You can't follow the recipe. You need to have the kitchen. Uh, to be able to actually, you know, have all the tools and everything. That's the engineering, the systems that go into being able to do everything. And then you need to have the skilled chefs who are actually able to use all of those things and put it together. Those are your machine learning and uh, data scientists. So even though you have to disclose the recipe, your patent is disclosing the recipe, all of those other things are barriers to entry that are difficult to replicate. Um, and so that's kind of the way that that we think about it. I mean, you know, to a degree, you have to build your own kitchen. It's not, you can't buy it. You got to like go and build your own kitchen, right? So, so, so it's, a, it's a whole different thing from like, uh, yeah, I, so we think that patent protection, you know, is, it's still difficult for somebody to, to replicate. Um, I want to just double down on everything Charles just said. When when I talk to my students who might be representing startups, everything that he just said, you know, you need to communicate that to your clients who are startups. You know, they may feel like uh, the patent is their their magic, uh, their golden ticket, or something like that. But you know, you have to think about complementary assets that need to be brought in to really succeed. And um, you know, I, I think that might be underemphasized, or at least I try to uh, make sure my students, uh, when they're dealing with startups, um, uh, pay attention to everything that that Charles just listed. Great. Uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to ask one last question in a couple parts um, for each of you. Where do you see AI evolving in the years ahead, and? Uh, what excites and what concerns you most uh, about uh, those developments? And uh, for Charles, I'm thinking about him saying that AI is going to match a human in 10 years. And I think about the, the Terminator and some of those uh, robotic uh, assassins. And so that, that concerns me a little bit, but um, the floor is uh, available for whoever wants to take the lead. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say there are a lot of people. It's interesting that it's turned into AI researchers who are now concerned about these things. It used to be the public, and now it's AI researchers. Uh, AI safety is a big area of research, um, and how we can develop these systems that will be better and smarter than people and everything, but make them be tools as opposed to uh, things that cause problems. <laughs> it's a it's a very very active area of research right now. Charles, what concerns do you have about AI, if any? Uh, in the short term, my biggest concern is that people will overestimate the performance of their AI algorithms and deploy them in applications where they are not good enough and cause uh, havoc. Um, that's the, that, that, that's my biggest short-term concern. Uh, in the long term, uh, my biggest concern is just about how uh, it's going to disrupt uh, kind of the labor force uh, within the next 10, 20 years. I think it's going to be a massive disruption to current labor force. And I, I don't know how society is going to adapt to it. It's interesting. Uh, 
I, I worry about that too, but I'm maybe not so gloom as Charles. Um, in history, we can see examples where new technology that you thought was going to replace labor didn't really do that. Uh, ATM machines came along uh, maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago. The number of bank tellers has gone up ever since automatic teller machines have been introduced. And they just found other tasks that were maybe of greater value to the firm. And so, you know, they didn't disappear. Uh, a textile technology in the entire 19th century got better, 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 really steadily. Um, but the number of people employed in the textile industry also went up over that same time period. That's because the price of things was crashing. And people, instead of having one shirt per week or, you know, one really two two pairs of shirts, period, you know, people started to go nuts and get 10 shirts or something like that. And so the, the, the better technology pushed prices down and meant that employment could actually continue to rise. That's the optimistic view, but Charles is right to be concerned. So I don't, you know, it may be on a case by case basis or maybe my worry is that it will continue to perpetuate inequality where people with college educations or STEM backgrounds continue to do really well. And other people, um, you know, seem to lag further behind. So rather than losing jobs, I'm, I'm just worried about uh, continued growth in uh, income inequality. I think in the um, robotics field and specifically surgical robotics, I mean, the the near future is certainly automating portions of surgical procedures. You know, for example, suturing, um, that's the easiest example that will get automated. Um, but I think the, the direction that we will eventually be in that is both exciting and scary is removing the surgeon from the operating room. Um, we're not quite there of accepting that, but remote surgical procedures are certainly in the future. and. Um, while that certainly brings up concerns about accuracy and you know what what goes wrong, and but it also simultaneously opens up um, and provides um, you know special specialists or to a wider patient population that may not have had access to that type of um, a surgeon or whatever it may be. So you know it's a little bit of a double edged sword. Yeah, I was just going to add to that in terms of patient access, right? We have in the U.S., you know, a routine screening system for women um, to detect breast cancer. We have lots of radiologists who are able to interpret those images. Um, but there's a whole world out there that it doesn't have the healthcare system that we do. And for those women, you know, potentially having an autonomous, you know, AI reading product they'd be detecting cancer that they they would not, you know, have otherwise detected, right? And so I think there's there's a possibility for to use these technologies to provide patients to care that they wouldn't normally see, right? Because they are not in areas where they, they can get access to healthcare. So I think it's um I think it's exciting, although I'm sure there are lots of reasons to be concerned, right, and, and risks uh, to uh, as we head into that world. But um, I think it's something to think about. Frank, how about you? Yeah, it's, it's overall, I'm pretty optimistic about the technology. We just heard great examples of, you know, how this technology is probably going to improve medicine, probably going to improve things like safety of driving, probably improve all these other fields. And I think that's great. Uh, you know, if anything, I think one of the biggest 
concerns I have is how human beings will react to this technology. I think it's rapidly evolving. I, I think it's it's pretty disorienting. You know, I, I as a you know technologist, you know, have a feel like I have a hard time keeping up with all the new developments. And so I think that for most people, it's it's probably just going to be flabbergasting the changes. It's going to be hard for policymakers and our government to keep up. Um, you know, I, I I don't know what that will mean. But I do think that these will be the, the, you know, among the biggest challenges, just, you know, people's reaction to the technology itself. All right. And I think we're a few minutes over time. Um, at this point, uh, Devin, are we able to extend a few minutes for some questions? Okay, uh, if anyone has any questions they want to put in the Q&A portal, entertain those. All right, it doesn't look like any are popping up yet. Um, any closing thoughts from folks? I guess we closed it with our uh, some of our, our thoughts towards the future and, and concerns, but maybe I'll just touch on one final patent-related topic. And Mike, you might have covered it already. Um, do we need to be making you know changes in in the patent? For the patent laws, you know, change any of our approaches to um, wording inventions in light of AI. Uh, quick comment: uh, Every patent lawyer is going to continue to bemoan the state of Section One Hundred One subject matter eligibility, and, and AI seems like it might even aggravate that question. So. Um, uh, I guess we need clarity. Um, I don't know if the sub the law needs to change much, but it, it seems quite unclear. Um, and and this is not an AI specific problem, but AI is probably going to aggravate this this problem. I think we have one question in. Yeah, can you see that? I'll throw that to the group. Whoever wants to tackle it, how do we deal with the issue of possibly not understanding how an AI solution arrives at its answer, even if we trust the answer itself. Which brave soul is gonna tackle this question? I'm happy to offer some thoughts. There's sort of two things that come to mind. One is in the context that we're talking about before in terms of um, AI created inventions, um, you know, I can totally imagine that an AI creates a solution to a problem, but you don't understand exactly how the solution works. Uh, I think that's a great example of where it's going to muddy this issue of patentability, because obviously, the you know, to, to obtain a patent, you need to be able to, you know, disclose how your invention works. And this might be an example of where, you know, a, you know, even if, you know, regardless of the question of, you know, who's the inventor, if you don't know how the solution works, then maybe there's just not enough to patent the solution, even if it is a good solution. But I think there's a larger issue here, which is that 
I do think AI will ultimately demonstrate to us, the humans, whole new ways of solving problems. And I think that, you know, an actual scenario like this of, you know, an AI creates a solution to a problem and you look at it and you're like, uh, you know, I have no idea how that works. That's going to, that's probably going to, uh, you know, enable the curious to gain a whole new set of understanding of how to solve problems in whatever domain we're talking about. I, I think it's going to be really interesting to try to work backwards and figure, you know, figure it out. And I think that you know, already these uh, systems are sophisticated enough that you can ask them questions like I've been doing with ChatGP today. And so I think that there will probably be the opportunity for humans to be able to learn whole new things from AIs, you know, just by asking them for their questions about how they operate. Um, I'll, I'll add a couple of thoughts to what Frank just said. Um, Satisfying the enablement requirement doesn't seem to me to be much of a problem, but I would worry instead about the, the the scope of the claim that I might be able to support. If I don't understand how my solution happened to work, I can at least provide the recipe or the roadmap that gets people to the the, the solution that I arrived at, but I might not be able to, what, what patent courts would say, provide guidance. I might not, in the sense of in-ray wands, I might not be able to provide much guidance that would entitle me to broaden out the scope of my claims to cover, cover other related processes or other related embodiments. And so, and I think maybe that would be the, the big challenges. Um, the disclosure that would entitle me to broad scope. Great. Well, we're 10 minutes past the hour. So at this point, I want to thank all the audience members who have joined us today. And a special thanks to uh, our panel of experts here. Uh, we, we wouldn't have been able to uh, put on this presentation without them. So thank you all for joining. And Devin, any uh, final thoughts before we and the webinar on and say thank you to everybody for speaking today and thank you so much for joining us this afternoon have a wonderful day everybody thanks thanks everyone Bye -bye. thank you pete thanks,